Uh, well, this morning we're in the middle of an eight-part series uh, in Mark's Gospel, taking September and October um, to do sort of an overview of, of Mark's Gospel and ask this question. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? What does it really look like to be a follower of Jesus? One of the, the main themes of Mark's Gospel is that of discipleship. You'll see the term uh, disciple used a lot in the scriptures. And to be a disciple of Jesus simply means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a Christian, as we might say. And so we're asking the question, what are some of the essential things, according to Mark's gospel, what are some of the main things uh, that mark the life of a believer? That mark the life of a disciple? And this morning, one of those things we see is prayer. And the main text we're going to look at this morning is a text we looked at a few weeks ago uh, from Mark chapter 11, and we were talking about the role of faith in the life of a Christian. You can see how those things would overlap quite a bit, faith and prayer. Well, this morning we're going to look at that same passage from Mark 11. We're going to focus specifically on prayer. You'll see a few other verses in your bulletin that I'll reference later as well, but let's look at our passage, Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 25. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's Word. Let me pray and ask Him to be with us as we consider it this morning. Father, we come to you as those who are deeply needy. Lord, we need you to speak to us through your Word. We need you to reorient our hearts this morning. Um, protect us from distraction, from the week behind us or the week ahead. Uh, may we take all those things in our life captive to you during this time. Lord, I, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're talking about prayer this morning, which, by the way, men, if you've been coming to the men's Bible study, you should have a leg up on this. Um, we've been talking all about prayer in the Bible study. Uh, but that's one of the main themes of, uh, in the life of the disciple in Mark's gospel. So what do I mean when I, when I say prayer? T- to pray is simply to talk to God. It's our communication with God. He speaks to us in his word, and we respond by speaking back to him in prayer. And so that can look like a lot of different things. Praising God, confessing our sins to God as we did earlier, asking God for specific things for us and for our world. It's the way we communicate with God. And one pastor refers to it this way. He says that prayer is the nerve center of our fellowship with Jesus. Prayer is the nerve center of our fellowship with Jesus. Uh, That is, if we want to have fellowship with Christ, if we want to have a relationship with Him, be close to Him, then we need to talk to Him. And that's what prayer is. I remember before I got married, I read 
a few books about marriage, uh, because surely the best way to prepare for marriage is to read some books. Um, as I was reading these books, they talked a lot about communication. And I remember thinking when I was engaged, you know, surely communication in marriage can't be that difficult, right? I mean, you love this person, you're married to them, you spend all your time with them. I would think our communication would be pretty easy. And then I got married and realized that communication was extremely difficult, even in the most intimate human relationship we can have. And we see this in our prayer lives as well, right? Even in the midst of the most intimate relationship we have, our relationship with the Lord, prayer is difficult. Communication is difficult. For many of you, prayer is something that you you know you should do. Uh, You know it's a good idea, and maybe you do it from time to time. But it's something you feel like you should do more, or at least you should do better. You hear the word should a lot when you think about your prayer life. And so this cloud of shame sort of comes in and hovers over us when we begin to think about prayer. You know, maybe you're a busy parent. Uh, your day begins with your children um, pulling on the covers on the side of your bed, and you wake up, and it's like this war zone scrambling to get people fed and clothed and off to school. You rush to work. Uh, your job consumes you in work and outside of work. Uh, you, you, you rush home, and then you're in another war zone of dinner and bath time and bedtime. And then the kids are asleep, so you exercise for about seven minutes, you watch about 12 minutes of that show on Netflix that everyone's watching, and then you just kind of pass out and fall asleep. All right, so when is there time to pray in the midst of all that? When do you pray? We're so busy. Prayer is really difficult. Or maybe you're at a phase in life where where your job is the main thing, where it's all about work. So you're thinking about work before you get there. You're there all day. Your phone keeps you tethered to work at night. And so productivity is key. And so when it comes to prayer, you try to sit down and pray and be still before the Lord, and it just feels so unproductive. You you sort of feel guilty because you're thinking, I could be like doing productive things right now, but I feel like I'm just sitting here. Uh, maybe you're in just a really discouraging phase of life right now where um, you're, you're, you're so discouraged that you almost feel like you're beyond praying, that you question whether it could even help at this point. Prayer is difficult. Maybe you're here as a kid with your parents and, you know, you're kind of used to praying on Sunday mornings and maybe your parents pray around the dinner table. Maybe they ask you to pray sometimes before a meal. But beyond that, it's not something you think a lot about. Maybe your friends at school don't really pray or talk about praying. And so it just seems sort of confusing to you, and you're trying to understand what it looks like to to pray on your own throughout the week. What are we to do? Followers of Jesus are called to be a people that pray, and yet we struggle to do it. A few months ago, it was a big moment for our family um, we, we uh, woke up early for the first day of school for our youngest daughter and uh, did the pictures with the sign, which are a major thing now. And uh, got her dressed and uh, packed the lunch, the backpack, everything. And I was taking her to school in my car. And um, about halfway between our house and the school, 
my car starts shaking. Um, not like a slight vibration, like lurching. To where, you know, normally a five-year-old would not, uh, would not know that something's wrong with the car. It's not on their radar, especially on the first day of school. And sure enough, uh, my five-year-old says, Dad, what is wrong with the car? Why is the car shaking? And I'm nervous because it's like lurching at this point. And, and so immediately I'm thinking not only about this immediate problem of my lurching car, but I'm thinking about like taking it to the repair shop and like the headaches that await me. And so I tell my five-year-old, I say, you know, it's, um, it, it's probably just something wrong with the wheels. Like, I think the wheels need to be adjusted or something. And that seemed to satisfy her mind. Um, but, but I knew within me that this was wishful thinking. Uh, th- that it was not a problem with the wheels on my car. My unrealistic hope in this moment was that to fix this problem, all it would take is some minor tweaks to the exterior of my car, some little adjustments here and there, and then boom, the lurching stops, everything's fixed. Well, as you might imagine, if you know anything about cars, which I clearly don't, um, I take it in, and it's not a little wheel adjustment, but it's like some major internal fix that needs to happen. And so the mechanics make this major internal fix, and sure enough, the lurching stops. The problem was at the very center of the car, not in the externals of it. A lot of times we think for for our prayer lives to improve, we need to just sort of make some external adjustments. We need to kind of change our behavior a little bit, and then we'll be good to go. You know, maybe it's uh, 10 more minutes in the morning to pray. Uh, Maybe it's reading the new inspiring book on prayer. Uh, Maybe uh, it's more accountability, right, from those around us to to make sure we, we continue to pray. And those are all good and important and I would say even necessary things to do. But those are not long-term fixes to our problem with prayer. Our hearts are the reason that we don't pray like we should. Our hearts are the reason we don't pray like we should. For us to really begin to pray, the inside, our internal hearts need to change. And so... As we're talking about prayer this morning, I, I don't want to just spend time on, on advice on, on how to pray. But I want to speak to our hearts. Because if you read the Gospels, Jesus always goes after the heart. Why? Because that's where real change happens. Change happens from the inside out. So let's ask this question. What kind of heart leads us to pray? What kind of heart leads us to pray? I just want to highlight three things briefly this morning. A praying heart is dependent, a praying heart is hopeful, and a praying heart is submissive. Okay, first thought I want us to see is that a praying heart is dependent. And this is obviously in contrast to that of an independent heart. Right? A praying heart is dependent. Look at the very beginning of Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying... He doesn't say if, he doesn't, but he says when. Not if, but when. And actually, if you read the, the, his, his introduction, his preface to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he does the same thing. And when you stand praying. Okay, the assumption here is that we are praying. Now, to get behind this, if we're going to be a people that pray, that are praying, what is the single most important posture of our hearts. 
It's dependency. It's dependency. It, we have to have dependent hearts if we're going to pray. Because behind dependency is this recognition and ownership of our need. And when we pray from this posture of neediness, we're recognizing that God is the one and the only one who can meet our need. But here's the problem with this. We don't like being dependent. And we don't like being needy. One of the most celebrated attributes in our culture is our independence. Right? Think about your own life. So much of our lives are structured in a way to where we don't need anyone or anything. But we've got it. We've got it all. We're independent. Let me just highlight two things the Bible says into that about our dependency. The first thing that the Bible says is that we were actually created to be dependent. We're created to be dependent. We see this in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2. God is the creator and we are his creatures. And, we, and therefore, we're dependent completely upon him. And as you read about Adam and Eve, their dependency is expressed in a number of ways. They depend on him for food, for their sustenance. They need him. They need to obey him. They need to follow him. They need to be with him. And then in Genesis 3, the serpent comes in and tempts them. And how does the serpent tempt them? By essentially saying that they don't need God. That they'd be better off independent of him. That they don't need to follow him. They don't need to obey him. That they need to do things their way. The fruit looks good. You should eat it. Don't depend on what God said. You don't need what he said. Eat the fruit. And for us then, this, this bent towards independence... Uh, towards not needing God, it's been so deeply ingrained within us. This is actually the very core of our sin. This is the core of our problem. That we think we don't need God, and we think we know better than Him. And then just add our current context onto that, right? Where again, we work so hard to not need anyone or anything, but to have it all on our own. But then when you look back to the garden before sin entered the picture... When Adam and Eve were flourishing was when they most needed and depended upon God. And this leads to the second thing that the Bible says about dependency that that I just want to be so clear about. Not only were we created to be dependent, but dependency is good. To be dependent is a good thing. And I wonder how that hits you. Because this is very upside down compared to the world around us. This is one of the ways we talk a lot about the kingdom of God. This is one of the ways the kingdom of God seems very countercultural and upside down. Where our world values independence at all costs, the kingdom of God values dependency upon God and on one another. And you see this all throughout. You, you could read through the Psalms, which are a great manual for prayer, by the way. We talked about those just this week in our men's Bible study. But the Psalms are, are, are almost a celebration of our need of God. And you see the psalmist time and again crying out and owning his need. If you read the Beatitudes, the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, sort of the the, the theme that runs through that sort of beatitudinal way of life is neediness and dependency. And look at those two other passages, those two other verses from Mark in your bulletin. Jesus modeled this himself with his own need to pray. Mark 1.35 This is Jesus speaking. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed 
and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus himself arises early and goes to pray. 646 says this, After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So 646, that's right in between Jesus feeding 5,000, which is amazing, and walking on water, right? Um, He goes off to pray because he depended upon the Father. He He was prayerfully dependent upon God, his Father. We were created to be dependent, and to be dependent on God is a good thing. And when our hearts own this, you see how that heart begins to pray then, don't you? I'm not good at this. Uh, when, when we moved here, um, I was confronted with my own neediness uh, when I tried to, to put together my kid's swing set on my own. Actually, some of you in this room helped me unload the swing set from our pod. And I just said, no, pile it up right there because I'm going to put that together later. And this was in June when we moved. Fast forward three months later to August. And in my backyard, there was a giant pile of swing set parts, which had not been touched. And so with some gentle prodding from my kids, I finally went in the backyard uh, and thought, yeah, I'm going to take a few hours and knock this out, put the swing set together. And uh, I realized how heavy a swing set is then. Uh, But I started to try to put it together. I get so frustrated. Ten minutes later, I'm back inside the house, throw my hands up, get my phone out, and I call someone to come and put it together. I finally own my neediness. I finally repent of my independence, and I depend on someone else to do it. And sure enough, within hours, someone was there with another worker, and, and they put it together. It was perfectly level. My kids were swinging. Everyone in my household was happy. It was a glorious thing, right? But I was just so committed to my independence, to, to not needing help on the swing set. And where did it get me? Right? A big pile of, of swing set parts in my backyard. I wonder, if you struggle to pray, which we all do, what do you make of your own neediness? Is it okay to be needy? This is actually really fundamental and crucial to embrace, not just for our prayer lives, but for our relationship with the Lord. Owning and acknowledging our need for the Lord, of His rescue of us, it's actually the first and only criteria we need in order to come to God. Uh, There's a hymn that says, All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. And this He gives you. What's required of us is that we need God. Are you able to own your own Neediness. You know, we don't bring our good works to God. We don't try to just muster up enough good to outweigh the bad in our lives. Do you know what you bring to God? You bring your need. That's what you contribute. And I would say if you're here considering Christianity for the first time, uh, know that to get in to this whole thing, to become a Christian, is all about owning your neediness. This is life for needy people. And I would say if you've been a Christian for a long time, do you know what happens to that neediness as you grow as a Christian? We would think that it gets less and less as we sort of figure this whole thing out. The opposite happens. The more you grow as a Christian, the more you realize just how needy and dependent you are. It's crucial for the life 
of the Christian. You see how this leads us to pray, don't you? The more our hearts become needy and dependent upon the Lord, the more we're going to cry out to Him. Praying heart is dependent. My next two thoughts are much more brief. Secondly, a praying heart is hopeful. A praying heart is hopeful rather than cynical. Hope stands in stark contrast to the spirit of our age, which is cynicism. You know, to be cynical is actually sort of in vogue um, because the assumption behind cynicism is that you get it and others don't. And we love to feel like we get it when others don't. Let's think about how cynicism and hope look different from each other. You know, cynicism is really, uh, it's embodied in this attitude of, of, I know what's really going on here, and you don't. I can see right through all this, and you can't. You're a part of this. You've been sort of hoodwinked by this, but I know what's really going on here. And in Mark's gospel, if you read through that, any of the gospels, look at the attitude of the Pharisees. When Jesus does something, when Jesus interacts with certain people, Look at how the Pharisees respond. When Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees are off to the side as though they see right through it. They know he can't be the Messiah because of this. They know he shouldn't be doing this. They can see right through it. They get it. He doesn't. They don't. They're in the right. Everyone else is in the wrong. That's cynicism. A guy named Paul Miller wrote a book on prayer a few years ago. And he talks about the impact of cynicism on our prayer life. And just listen to what he says here. He says, To be cynical is to be distant. While offering a false intimacy of being in the know, cynicism actually destroys intimacy. It leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. A praying life is just the opposite. It engages evil. It doesn't take no for an answer. The psalmist was in God's face, hoping, dreaming, asking. Prayer is feisty. Cynicism, on the other hand, merely critiques. It is passive, cocooning itself from the passions of the great cosmic battle we are engaged in. It is without hope. So Miller says that cynicism, that the cynical heart is distant, bitter, critical, and passive. That it has false intimacy of being in the know. You can see how that will utterly destroy your prayer life. And we're surrounded with cynicism. It's, it's in culture all around us. And it's in our own hearts. That's our natural inclination is to be cynical. And it feels very unnatural to be hopeful. What does it look like to have a hopeful heart? Look at Mark eleven twenty two, And if you remember, this is just after Jesus curses the fig tree. Peter was surprised that it actually withered. Sort of in shock. Jesus says, verse 22, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. This is like the least cynical statement that could be made. The least cynical view. It's utterly hopeful. Jesus says to believe, to be hopeful that God can and will act. So what do we do with our cynical hearts? 
What do we do with our cynical hearts? Well, first we need to recognize that we have them. And we need to bring them captive to this story of redemption that we find in the scriptures. Uh, Think about the last time you read a really great book uh, or watched a really great movie. You know that feeling um, where when you finish the book or you, you finish the movie, and it feels like you're almost living in the story that you just read, where it's like you're English royalty, or like you're the superhero, or you're the FBI detective. It was, it, was, it was such a captivating story that it sort of becomes reality for you in those moments just after you see it or, or read it. The story of redemption in the Bible is a true story that defines reality for us perfectly. That it, that, it, it, that it perfectly explains ourselves and our world. So much so that, that to grow as a Christian is to let the scriptures shape our understanding of reality. How we view ourselves, how we view the world, how we view God, what our purpose is in life. And the end of this story of redemption in the scriptures is hopeful. It's the most hopeful thing we can see for those in Christ. Because it ends with eternal life with Jesus Christ and his people in the new heavens and the new earth forever. That's the guaranteed true end to the story. And we have access to that. And so to grow, to follow Jesus out of our cynicism means to be shaped by that. And this is crucial for us to see in our cynicism. That if Jesus stayed dead... If Jesus did not come out of the grave, then we would have every reason to be cynical. To just throw our hands up and roll our eyes. But if Jesus walked out of the tomb, if he's really risen from the dead, then how can we not be hopeful? Because that resurrection guarantees the end of that story. This is the way out of our cynicism and into hope. And and you can see, again, how that will, a heart like that will be fueled into prayer. Because think of the one you're communing with, you're talking to in prayer. It's the one who conquered death and walked out of the grave. That's the one who you're speaking to. Praying heart is dependent. A praying heart is hopeful. Third, a praying heart is submissive. And it's submissive rather than resistant. Submissive to what? Submissive to what God is doing. To his will. Now let me clarify that by saying what submission is not. Submitting to God is not not asking God for things. It's not just sort of rolling over, throwing our hands up. Remember how we said earlier in that quote that prayer is feisty? So submitting to God doesn't just mean sort of throwing our hands up and being okay with whatever. Think about how many times Jesus tells us to ask boldly in prayer. Um, Submitting to God's will is not just shrugging your shoulders at whatever comes our way. Remember, that actually gets back into cynicism. Submission is actually all about asking. It's all about hoping before God uh, for better. Right? Read the Psalms. It's all over. But the difference is that submission is always accompanied with a surrender to the Lord. With a surrender that God is good and He knows what He's doing. And what does this perfect surrender and this perfect submission look like? It looks like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
the night before he went to the cross. This comes from Mark 14, verse 32 and following. Before Jesus goes to the cross, listen to this. When they went to a place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus prays to God the Father, God, if it's your will, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. But if this is your will, I submit to it. I surrender to your will. And this is important to see that, that it's Jesus' surrender to the Father, right, that led to our reconciliation to the Father. And it gives us this proof that this God is, in fact, a good God that loves us and cares for us and wants, it, and wants us back. Because when Jesus surrendered to the Father and died on the cross and rose again, by faith in that, we then become reconciled back to God. How do we know that this is a God worth submitting to? Look at the cross. Look at what he did for us. You know, his word tells us all about how good he is. And the cross shows us that. It shows us that. So the question that, that we're forced to then wrestle with is, are God's plans better than your plans? Are God's plans really better than your plans? Does God really know better than you do? And is God a good God that you can submit to? With your family? With your future? With your children? With your job? With your health? Is God really good? Can he be trusted? And are his plans better than your plans? The praying heart is dependent. The praying heart is hopeful. And the praying heart submits. I came across this story this week of a French chef named Sebastian Bross. Uh, Bross is, I'm assuming I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, Bross is a famous French chef uh, of a restaurant called Les Souquettes. Uh, Le Souquet in France has held a Michelin three-star rating for over a decade. Uh, now in the restaurant business, to have any Michelin, even just conversation around your restaurant is a huge deal. And to have the top three-star rating is, a, is an even bigger deal. Uh, one star means very, a very good restaurant in its category. Two stars means excellent cooking, worth a detour. Three stars Exceptional cuisine worth a special journey. So these three-star restaurants around the world are ones that, like, you should plan your vacation around. That's how Lay Suquette was ranked for over a decade. And what this week did Sebastian Bross do with his three-star rating of his restaurant? He asked this week that his rating be removed and not be published in the Michelin Guide to Restaurants. Why? This sounds crazy. This sounds like a terrible business move. 
Quote, Bross said he could no longer cope with the pressure of meeting the standards now expected of him. He says in this article that Michelin inspectors can come at any time. You have no idea when they're coming. They're always undercover. And Bross says that he wants to run his kitchen without fear. Quote, I will be able to feel free without asking myself whether my creations will please Michelin judges. You can feel this dynamic, right? You can put yourself in his shoes. The Michelin judges come to judge you against a perfect standard, knowing these judges could come at any time. And it strikes fear in these chefs and all the people working for them. And it can totally ruin their their love and their joy for cooking. Do you know what the good news of Christianity is? It's that God's judgment on our sin, God's judgment on our failure to meet his perfect standard, God's judgment on our imperfection was poured out in full on Jesus Christ when he hung on the cross. Jesus Christ was judged and condemned in our place. And you know what happens with his perfection? You know, Jesus perfectly met God's standards. Do you know what happens to that? When we put our faith in him, it's accredited to us. And it's as though we're, we're hidden in him and, and as though we've met that standard perfectly by nature of our faith in Christ. It's given to us. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness. And this means that fear and pressure are no longer motives for Christian obedience. This means that fear and pressure are no longer motives to fuel your prayer life. Because you're going to end up like those chefs who are so burdened with fear and pressure of getting it wrong that you're just going to give up. You're never going to do it. Because of what Jesus did for us, we now stand in freedom. And we pray in freedom as beloved children of God. And then do you see how this will change our heart's approach to God in prayer? Let me read again. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, which you heard during your, the assurance of pardon. This is Jesus coming to us. Jesus uh, calling us to come to him. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are the words from Jesus himself inviting you to come to him. And look at the quote on on the front of your handout. This is from Paul Miller again on this passage. He says, This is the gospel, the welcoming heart of God. God also cheers when we come to him with our wobbling, unsteady prayers. Jesus does not say, Come to me, all you who have learned uh, how to concentrate in prayer, whose minds no longer wander, and I will give you rest. No, Jesus opens his arms to his needy children and says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The criteria for coming to Jesus is weariness. Come overwhelmed with life. Come with your wandering mind. Come messy. Now, with a God who loves us like this, with a God who treats us like this, do you see what this does to your heart? And do you see how that heart then becomes a praying heart? Who can cry out in dependence on God, with real hope that God is at work and will continue to be at work, and they can cry out to God from a place of submission, knowing that he's good 
and that his will for us is good. Let me pray for us. Father, it, it does seem too good to be true. Lord, we, we're not good at praying. We need your help. We ask you to help us. Lord, we, we confess that we would much rather have uh, some minor behavioral modifications in our lives that would fix our prayer lives than to do the hard work of, uh, of having our hearts opened up before you. But Lord, we ask in your kindness and grace to us that you would give us hearts that are more dependent, hearts uh, that are more hopeful, and hearts that are more submissive to you. God, we pray we would look to Jesus for that and his grace to us. Oh God, meet us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.